descriptions. Uh, you probably remember the baker and the butler, or the wine, the wine bearer, the cup bearer, the wine steward. Um, well, of course, the wine steward promised to put in a good word for Joseph when he was incarcerated, um, but completely reneged on that promise, and nothing was said. Two years now, poor Joseph has been incarcerated after that event. This is where we pick up the next part of the story. Pharaoh dreamed a dream, as they say. Um, it was actually two dreams. First dream related to him standing by the River Nile. Seven healthy cows. Forgive me if you know this story by the back of your hand, but it may be useful just to refresh ourselves. So seven healthy cows surface out of the River Nile. And then seven emaciated cows also surface. In their skeletal state, they eat the healthy cows. Strange dream. Next dream is that seven ears of corn grow up on one stalk, ripe and lush, and then seven more ears, thin and scorched from Neasley Wind, we're told, also grow up. And guess what they did? They, that's right, they ate, they ate the, uh, the good ears of corn. So the magicians and the wise men come along. Of course, they, it all falls apart. They can't do anything other than scratch their beards, presumably. But then an event takes place which changes the nation's history, as it often does when God decides to intervene, and a wine steward remembered something. He remembered Joseph. He recalled his interpretation skills of two years previously. Pharaoh, of course, summons Joseph straight away, and he interprets the dream for him. And the dream, of course is provided an interpretation of immense accuracy. The seven healthy cows, says Joseph, and the seven ears of corn are seven years, seven years of plenty. The seven emaciated cows and the seven scorched ears of corn are the seven years of famine. It's all fixed by God, Joseph then goes on to say. So in other words, it cannot possibly be changed. Pharaoh was pretty elated by this point. He commands Joseph and to sort it all out and makes him prime minister to do so. So he's now 30 years old. He's, he's been there 13 years in Egypt. And he's arrived as a slave and now he's the prime minister. So he's not done too bad so far. He, pr- pr- he proves to be a, an excellent resources manager. He husbands the crops for the seven years of plenty and makes sure that it's available for the seven years of famine which are bound to follow. So famine strikes, as predicted, and the reserves of crops are carefully distributed as planned. Time passes, and meanwhile, back in Canaan, of course, famine is taking its toll, and Jacob's family are suffering, as are many other nations. It's much wider than Egypt and Canaan. And it's decided by Jacob that he should send some of his sons, ten, ten sons, not Benjamin, we'll talk about him in a moment, but the other sons have to go down to Egypt to try and buy some crops. Soon as they arrive, Joseph recognizes them instantly, but of course they don't recognize him. Joseph decides he's going to test them, so for the time being at least, he decides to keep quiet. In fact, he accuses them of being spies, as you might recall, and demands that their other brother, which he asks some searching questions regarding, Benjamin, comes and joins them. He's the youngest, of course. 
After a quick team huddle, they all agree to these terms and they return to Canaan and tell Jacob what they've learned and discovered. Now, Jacob loves Benjamin very deeply indeed. <clears throat> Only Benjamin and Joseph, you might recall, uh, were born of Rachel and they are special to him. But when Joseph, and they come back <clears throat> with Benjamin, and when Joseph finally claps eyes on Benjamin, he, the emotions get to him, he has to leave the room, bursts into tears, recomposes himself, slushes his face, comes back, and very composed, he feeds them, gives them all the corn they could want, tells them that everything's going to be okay, and does what every good host does, and gets them blind drunk. After that, he orders a servant to covertly put into the rucksack of Benjamin, the youngest, he calls it the youngest because it's Benjamin, he orders them to put into his rucksack a very special silver cup. And off they go, heading back towards Canaan with their booty. But they haven't travelled very far when the trap was sprung uh, and the brothers were hauled back to the presence of Joseph, who, of course, has now discovered the theft. And Benjamin was to be punished, he was to become a slave. The brothers begged for mercy, led by Judah, and he explained the importance of Benjamin to Jacob and the history uh, and really begged him to have mercy. At this point, Joseph's emotions well up again. He can't hold it in any longer. It all comes flowing out, and he reveals through sobs of joy everything and the entire history of his time there. Jacob and his rather ample extended family are all hauled back on wagons to Egypt with the blessing of Pharaoh, given some rather nice land. And then Joseph goes on to live a fulfilling life to the ripe old age of 110, 110. So that's the lightning to the last adventure of Joseph. Thanks, Rob. Should we pray? We look at this together. Father, we thank you, Lord, just for that story, Lord, and how amazing it is. Uh, and Lord, it's just a, a lot to take in, Lord, these last sort of six chapters. But Father God, help us just to keep in mind what Rob's just said, um, how he's taking us through that. Uh, and Lord, just to try and put ourselves in Joseph's position um, and to understand what it would have been like for him uh, serving you in Egypt all those years ago. Bless us now, Lord, if we look at um, this story a little bit and make a few comments. And that, Lord, may everything that, that's said now this morning be for your glory and for the building up of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. I am... Um, I asked Rob to, just to give us a, a bit of a story of those six chapters, because actually we're doing chapter 41 to 46, and I really was fairly certain that you wouldn't want a uh, six-chapter reading um, before anything else happened. I could have been wrong, of course. Maybe I was wrong, I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, so we're finishing off. We've been doing three weeks on Joseph, and, um, and uh, we've been looking at his life. Um, and so we saw in week one, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, um, you remember with the, with the coat and the, and the dreams and how he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Uh, we saw last week him as the favourite slave. He goes to Potiphar. He's made uh, in charge of his entire household. Um, and then today, having been accused of attempted rape and slung in prison, we now see him, as Rob's already told us, out of prison, uh, restored. And now he becomes Pharaoh's favourite official. So favourite son, favourite slave, and favourite official. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a great story, actually. And if you get a chance to go home and read it and ponder it and think about what your life, where your life fits in to this bigger picture, 
Um, I heard a brilliant quote um, this week. Uh, let me just get it right in my mind before I deliver it badly. Um, yeah, if your life uh, isn't making sense, you need to drop it into a bigger story. Uh, and actually, what you see in the, in the story of Joseph, actually, is you, you can take all the individual bits of it and you can say, that's really rubbish, or that's really hard, or that's really great. But actually, the way of making sense of his story is to take all those little bits and plonk it into a bigger story, God's bigger story. And this morning, um, when things go tough, um, you need to take it and put it into a bigger story, the bigger story of what God is doing across all of history and all of the universe and where your life fits into that, because it does fit into that. Because God is in charge of absolutely everything. So when things go wrong, he's still in charge. That is the message of the Joseph story. God is never not on the throne. He's never not sovereign in the Joseph story. In these 14 chapters, he's always in charge. And right in Genesis 50, that is what he realizes right at the very end. God meant it for good, even though you meant it for evil. And one of the questions we like to ask as human beings um, is the question, why? Um, for example, um, some of the questions why you may see, um, some people might ask this question. Sorry, these are meant to be vaguely amusing. I, I'm, the reason I'm hesitating is I'm sure I've said these before at some point. So I've been here long enough now to start repeating myself, but probably not long enough that you've all remembered what I said, so it doesn't actually matter, does it? I could use the same thing, uh, and we'll see. Um, anyway, so the question why is something we love to ask. Uh, why does the sun lighten our hair but darken our skin? No? All right. Uh, why doesn't glue stick to the inside of the tube? Ever thought about that? It's an interesting thing. Thank you. I appreciate the effort. God bless you. Um, why is abbreviated such a long word? That's quite funny. You're just doing it for my own benefit now. It's okay. Um, somebody else once asked, why is it called lipstick when you can still move your lips? Oh dear. Thank you. See, this is the first time Harvey's heard them. God bless you. Um, you wait till Christmas. I've got a whole, a whole list. <laughs> I'm not finished yet either. Um, why is it called a boxing ring when it's square? Oh dear. Um, no, forget that. Actually, forget that one. That's rubbish. Um, sorry. Why is the third hand on a watch called the second hand? Why isn't there mouse-flavored cat food? And the most important why question this morning for many of us is why is Honey G still in the X Factor? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but we like to ask why. For those who don't watch The X Factor, don't worry. Um, don't worry. Um, but as children, we ask why. We grow up asking why. Why, why, why? And it's normally about food, isn't it? When the kids are young, they say, can I have that? And they say, no. And they say, well, why? And then you say, well, I haven't got any money. Why? And you get into a whole long rabbit hole. But as we get older, the word why tends to be more about more serious things, isn't it? Why did that person pass away? Why have they died? Lord, why didn't I get that job? I've worked so hard. Lord, why did they leave me? They promised they never would. Things like that. We Last week we left Joseph in prison, as Rob reminded us. He'd been in there uh, 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 having been um, accused of attempted rape of Potiphar's wife, something he did not do and did everything he could um, to keep out of a vulnerable situation, but she accused him of attempted rape and she has him thrown in prison. He interprets these two dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. The baker's sadly executed, but the cupbearer leaves, having been asked by Joseph, please remember me. Tell Pharaoh, I'm in here unfairly, get me out. Two years go by. Can you imagine how Joseph may well have felt? Two years, it's just not fair, is it? It's just not fair. 
Two years pass. And let's face it, if many of us were in Joseph's situation, having been sold as a slave by your brothers, having been shoved down a hole, having been taken a pot of, having clawed your way back up to favorite slave, and then accused of attempted rape and slung in prison and forgotten about for two years, wouldn't all of us use the word why? Wouldn't we be saying to God, why have you allowed this and now? Haven't I already been through enough? Why have you allowed me to be in prison? I thought you were good. I thought you were in charge. I thought you were God. I thought you were on my side, like I'm on your side. Why didn't you protect me? Lord, why am I the one always learning the lessons? Have you ever said that? Lord, why is it always me that's got to grow in my personal faith? What about him? He should be growing in his personal faith. And as for her, oh my. But me, Lord, it's always me that gets chipped away at, and I'm always doing the growing Why can't you put that person in prison and let me go free? That doesn't sound very good, does it? But Joseph says absolutely nothing. In fact, one thing that really hit me, in this whole story, these 14 chapters, Joseph says precious little. And there must be something important in that. There's lots of talking about his character, about his faith, about his life, and about the way God is moving. But this on Joseph is strangely still. I wonder if sometimes we talk too much as human beings, and we should listen for God moving a bit more in our life. So it seems so unfair, doesn't it? But as awful as it was for him to be in prison for two years on a charge of attempted rape, what we realize is actually that moment in prison is pivotal for the whole of the 14-chapter story of Joseph's life and that of his family coming from Canaan to Egypt. It is actually uh, prison was actually his pivotal moment in his life. Prison uh, was intended as his route to the palace. Prison was his God-intended route to the palace. He ends in the palace, prime minister, in charge of everything except Pharaoh himself. But he was only getting to the palace via the prison. And I really believe there's something important just in that phrase, that his route to the palace was via prison. I believe that's an important thing for us to have in our minds because sometimes we go to prison, don't we? Not literally, sometimes literally, but we go through all sorts of different types of prisons. Joseph's route to the palace was via the prison. And I believe that matters, maybe for one or two of you this morning. And it matters because prison was essential for the Joseph we meet in chapter 41 to 46. Without prison, the Joseph that we end the story with would not be the Joseph that we meet in those six chapters. And I believe that this prison experience, whilst not caused by God, of course not, was used by God amazingly. And there are just a couple of points I'd like to bring out this morning, and they hopefully appear behind me. The first is that prison completed Joseph's character refinement. Uh, it rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? I think I rose it better on the slide, possibly. Um, but prison uh, refined his character completely. It finished off the refinement of his character. You remember in the second week, when we got to chapter 39, we'd already mentioned, already met him in chapter 37. In chapter 37, he's this arrogant little kid with a nice fancy coat, there we are. Um, and a nice fancy coat. He's the favorite son. He's all like that, isn't he? I had this dream last night, bro. And I was this, and you all bowed down to me. Isn't it brilliant? And then we get to chapter 37, and that arrogant kid is gone. And he's actually quite humble. He's quite godly. He's quite good. And you'd be thinking, well, he's grown. That's all right, isn't it? 
But actually, God wasn't finished with Joseph. He might be better than he was in chapter 37 from chapter, sorry, chapter 39 from chapter 37, but God didn't want to finish with him there. He needed him better. He needed him more complete for what was going to come in his life, for the challenges he was going to have to face and the opportunities. You know, as Christians, we must never think that God is finished with us. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you mustn't think that God isn't interested in completing you and refining you. God is never finished chipping away the bits of us that are no good for us or society or don't reflect his glory. The Bible talks of us needing to be Christ-like. We're supposed to reflect Jesus Christ in everything we say, everything we do. Church isn't just the thing we do once a week and we go home to be ourselves. That's a modern phrase, isn't it? You've got to be yourself. What on earth does that mean? Who are you? How do you even know what you're supposed to be? But when you become a Christian, I'm told I'm made in the image of God. I'm told that Christ is my brother, my friend. And I'm told I'm to be him. I'm to be like Jesus. So when people say, just be yourself, what on earth does that even mean? How do you even know yourself well enough to be yourself? But in Christ, you have a dead set, concrete example of what it means to be him. And that's the one God designed you to be. He didn't design you to be the fallen version of you, but the perfect version of his son. And God chips away everything that doesn't reflect his son, Jesus, until all he can see and all the world can see is Jesus Christ. If you've got access to YouTube, um, when you get home, Google, not Google, sorry, search up on YouTube a video called God's Chisel by the Skit Guys. Uh, the Skit Guys, God's Chisel. There we are. Um, and, uh, and it's brilliant. It's really good. Just two guys acting out God, chipping away. And every time God hits the ha- you know, imaginary chisel, obviously, he goes, oh, ouch, ow. Can't you stop now? Can't you stop? Please stop now, God. And God says, no, just a bit more, a bit more, just a bit more. Because I want to make you like my son, Jesus. God is not finished with your eye this morning. So we see Joseph, actually, in these six chapters, is almost a complete man. And and I love the Joseph we meet in these six chapters because we see certain characteristics that are brilliant in his life. Characteristics that I believe are the characteristics God wants from every single one of us this morning. And this is what God left him in prison for two years for, so that he could have these characteristics, so he could face the opportunities and the challenges that were going to come that Rob alluded to a moment ago. And the first characteristic uh, we see is humility. So as he comes out of prison, uh, he has a shave, he has a clean-up, he has a wash. That's always good. So he knew what you do before you get invited to a party, unlike some of you uh, who don't wash, clearly. Um, And so he washes and has a shave, and he goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him what happened. And in verse 16, Joseph says about interpreting the dream, I cannot do it. And you think, of course you can. You've done it twice already. He's humble. I cannot do it. And then he says, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I cannot do it. In this chapter, we see that actually, finally, Joseph is all about God. In chapter 41, God is mentioned by Joseph five times. Compare that to chapter 37, when he's all I and me and me and I. But here it's God, 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 God. He is 100% about God. 
In verse 33, when he makes the suggestion that Pharaoh should employ somebody to keep the grain for the seven good years and distribute it for the seven years of famine, there is not even a tiny hint that he's pushing himself forward for that job. He is so humble that he's just happy to serve. I can't do it, but God will tell me and I'll tell you, and presumably I'll go back to prison. I think that's what's going through his mind. Pharaoh gives him the job in the end. A friend of mine who's a church leader um, was told by somebody else who also ran a church that he should spend 50% of his time serving in his church. He should spend the other 50% publicizing himself so that he can get on the speaking circuit. New wine, things like that, spring harvest. Write a book, get well known, get invited to things. But it happens in all walks of life, doesn't it? You know, you need to get yourself social media account, LinkedIn, lots of followers or whatever else happens in other places. Humility is one of the most wonderful characteristics and I believe one of God's favorite characteristics in human beings. Humility is also one of the most underused, underexpressed characteristics in all of human history. You rarely meet a truly humble person because humility is about everybody else first and everything for the glory of God. I don't think any of us have ever met a truly humble human being because we all secretly want the glory. We all secretly want that. Well done, you're such a great guy or woman. Joshua, that's not Joshua, that's uh, next week perhaps. Joseph is just happy to serve. He just speaks God's word Gone are his personal ambitions. Gone is his desire for personal glory. It is replaced only for a desire to see the name of God lifted high. Are we so desperate sometimes to let other people know just how valuable we are, just how special we are? Have we forgotten the joy of being forgotten as we serve the King of Kings? It might be in your secular job or at church. Do you need people to know how many hours you put in at church during the week? Do you need people to know that you were here three nights this week? Does that even matter? Or are you doing it because you just love to serve the King of Kings? When you're at work and your boss says, can you do that? And you happily do it because you're a Christian and you want to go the extra mile. Do you let everybody know that you did that extra hour without being paid double time, I might add? Although no one gets that anymore, do they? Um, sorry, that's probably a sore point for some of you. But I wonder, is humility a dying characteristic? I believe it's God's favorite characteristic. Second thing we see in Joseph is boldness in that same verse. I can't do it. He says, but God will tell you. God will interpret your dream. He doesn't worry what Pharaoh might think. He just points in faith to the fact that God will reveal his dream. And then in verses 33 to 36, we see his wisdom. And we'll just read these to you quickly. It says, and now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man. Put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food from those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country and be used for the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so the country may not be ruined by famine. Not only is he humble, not only is he bold for God, he's also actually quite a wise guy, or a wise man, I should say, not a wise guy. Um, He's wise. And the Bible calls us to be wise people. Are you wise? I don't mean academically clever. That isn't the same as wisdom. There are lots of people that have got lots of degrees, but haven't got much wisdom. 
You know that because they just talk without any sense of quality control. And they say whatever they think sounds good at that particular moment. That's not wisdom, is it? Wisdom is knowing when to shush sometimes. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. The beginning of wisdom is an awe of God, a worship of God. And James chapter 1 verse 5 says this, I'll do that as a cliffhanger, by the way, that pause. Um, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. And he who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. What I love about the Bible is it makes everything really simple. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it. Anyway, move on. Next, Next topic, next question. Ask God for it. I wonder how wise we are as human beings. We're called to be wise. We have the wisdom of God at our fingertips. We need to ask every day. I try and ask every day for wisdom. Some of you may be wondering why I don't ask twice a day, um, but that's a different issue. Um, So Joseph is bold, he's humble, he's wise, he's hardworking. He gets on with the job. Verses 46 um, to 49 tell us that Joseph is just on, he's serving, he's storing up the grain, he's doing all the things he wants. He's fair as well. In chapter 41, 56 to 57, we read how he distributed the grain to all those that came to pay. He didn't overcharge, he didn't rip anybody off. And when he meets his brothers, we realize that one, another one of his characteristics as this, as, the, as this complete man is that he forgives and he provides. And he also trusts God. One of the great verses in the book of Genesis, the whole of the book of Genesis, in chapter 50, verse 19 to 20, he says this, But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended it to harm me. God intended it for good. That's the selling into slavery and prison years. So he's all these things, Joseph. He is the complete man. And I want to say, I want to talk to the men in the church Um, this morning because if you want to know what you should be like as a man Joseph is a pretty decent example as men we need to be humble in what we do men love bravado and that's what we do apparently some of us not all of us Um, we love a bit of bravado we love to kind of yeah 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 some of us not all of us Um, but we need to be humble we need to be seeking the good of other people we need to be bold for our God I wonder as men are we bold at work that people even know we're Christians are we prepared to stand up and fight the good fight? Or do we leave it to others? As men, are we hardworking? Are we wise? Or do we just talk because, hey, I don't care? Do we pray for wisdom? Are we anointed by the Holy Spirit? Are we seeking God's Spirit on our life, our work life, and our, life, and our role as dads or husbands or sons? Are we fair in everything we do as men? Do we forgive and provide? Do we trust in God? In everything we do. That's what the complete man is like. That's the man that God left in prison to produce. The average man loves a project. Um, I don't know, some men here love a project. I'm not sure I'm, I might buck the trend slightly. But the stereotypical man, let's do that. I haven't done that for a while. Um, loves a project. I'll redo the garden. I'm doing this shed. That's a great thing men say. I'm doing this shed. And then their wives might say, well, what are you doing in the shed? You're not allowed in the shed. It's the shed. So out of bounds, I'm doing the shed. 
or I'm doing the basement, that's my project for the summer, or I'm going to build an extension, or I'm going to do a car up, or redo an engine, or build a computer, or something, or something, or something. Wouldn't it be good if us as men stopped having projects that don't really matter, dare I say it, and start making our character our next project? Wouldn't it be good if over the summer holidays next year, you said to your wife or your girlfriend or your friend, yeah, this summer my project is me. I'm going to make me the man God wants. I'm going to make sure that by the end of the summer I'm as humble as I can be, as wise as I can be, working hard, filled with his spirit, so God can use me in great ways. And maybe some of you here this morning are like Joseph, uh, moving away from... uh, talking to the men, talking to all of us. Maybe you're like Joseph this morning. Maybe you feel like you're in a prison. It might be a a literal prison. You may be in a a, a debt. You may be lost in a job that you absolutely hate. You may have a, a disease that is just eating away and you can't get rid of, or a condition. You may be locked in the prison of your own mind or your own emotional turmoil or guilt from the past, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there are two things you can do. You can be bitter and despair, or you can allow God in to that dark place and let the God of all healing turn what is awful into a place of growth. Joseph grew whilst in prison because he let God in. Romans chapter 5, one of my favorite bits, talks about suffering and it says this, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And James chapter 5 verse 11 says something very different, very similar, sorry. And so if you're locked in your prison this morning, you need to allow God to make it a place of growth rather than a place of despair. Let him in. And actually often people that do truly great things for the King of Kings go through a period of trial first a period of difficulty, almost preparation, perhaps even training. And if your life is difficult this morning and you're a Christian, maybe God is preparing you for something great. And you need to trust him in that. So second thing, uh, second reason God allows Joseph to have those two years is because he had to be brought down low to be raised up high. It's clear when we hit chapter 41 of Genesis that uh, Joseph really needed especially in light of his sort of arrogance in chapter 37, he needed to be humbled. He needed to be brought down as low as he possibly could go so that when he was lifted as high as he could possibly go, he could handle it. In chapter um, 41, verse 40 to 46, we get a sense of just how high um, Pharaoh elevates Joseph. He says to him, You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Imagine. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger, dressed him in robes of fine linen, and put him to ride in his chariot. Sorry, put a gold chain round his neck. He had him ride in the chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name, hang on, I haven't practiced this at home. Um, Well, you can read it yourselves. Um, And gave him his daughter to be his wife. 
And Pharaoh and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 30 years old, and he is the most important man just behind Pharaoh. In prison, God removed every ounce of self-reliance, self-confidence, and arrogance from Joseph so that he could cope with being elevated to that highest point. When me and Andrea moved into our house um, down the road, um, we did a quick job of uh, painting things up and putting carpets everywhere uh, ready for the kids and uh, we painted Hannah Marie's bedroom, and particularly the woodwork around the door frame and on the skirting board. Um, and we ran out of time, so we didn't rub it down. And we just thought, does it matter? And I looked at Andrew and I said, nah, who cares? Who's going to see it? And so we painted over it. I'm not being funny, it looked quite good. I was quite proud of it. And uh, stepped back and thought, quite good. Anyway, uh, about... Three days later, (laughs) not quite three days, about three months later, you can guess what happened. The paint began to peel off because it hadn't been properly prepared. We did her bedroom recently and we did rub the woodwork down-ish again. uh, So it's a bit better, so it should last a bit longer this time, hopefully. But I wonder this morning, maybe you're in a bit of a prison, not because God put you there, but maybe God is going to use this to chip away all your self-reliance all of your over-self-confidence, all that bit of you that still believes you can do it in your strength. Maybe what God is trying to teach you is that you can't and that the one person you need is him. Maybe what God is trying to do is chip away all that is false, even your self-confidence, so that you can be lifted up in the power of his strength. And the third thing, the third reason why this prison experience mattered is Joseph had to see the big picture so that he could forgive his brothers. I've often wondered why Genesis only gives 18 verses to his promotion as second in command of Egypt, yet the writer gives five chapters to this interaction with his brothers, reuniting and forgiving them. And then that's why Rob told us the story, because I didn't have time to read it all to you. And see, culturally, we're very individualistic, aren't we? We love the rags to riches story. I was getting my hair cut um, last week, and the guy in the, in the the haircutting shop, um, he was saying to me how much he loved the rags to riches story. So oh, I love it. Yeah, and he was telling about this kid on the X Factor. Oh, it's brilliant. He came from nowhere and now he's making it big in America. Everyone loves a rags to riches story. Joseph has that experience. He goes from prison to second in command in a really, really short time. And we're quite individualistic still in the West. And so we want to focus on that bit because that's the bit that's really interesting because I'd like some of that. Thank you very much, Lord. I'd love to be lifted high to second in command of something. But actually the point of his promotion isn't for his own personal achievement. Part of what's happening here is the bigger picture. You see, God had a plan. Has had a plan since Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when he prophesied, when he predicted that the, um, somebody from the line of Eve would crush evil with his heel the first promise of jesus christ the messiah and so as part of god's plan he called abraham who became a family who would become a nation and from that nation would become jesus christ at that first christmas 2000 years ago and actually the reason joseph was promoted wasn't for him it was for them because actually if that family hadn't reunited god's salvation plan would have failed The salvation of the world hung in the balance of this family's health. Not just moving out of famine Canaan to Egypt, but 
how they come together and they forgive each other after selling their brother into slavery. And you get a real sense of how hard it was for Joseph to forgive them with the thing in the sack and backwards and forwards, how hard it was for him to forgive his brothers. Prison stripped him of his arrogance and his pride, but perhaps it stripped him of his bitterness and his anger at his family so that when he saw them and he saw God's hand at work, he could actually forgive them. The turning point of this story isn't his promotion. It's the reconciliation between him and his family when he understood that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And so I want to finish just with three points, three questions, then I'll give you a second to think about them. Are you in prison this morning? Are you in a prison up here or a prison in here or a literal prison where you feel trapped in a situation? Have you yet asked God to use it for his glory? Have you yet asked God to help? Have you called out to him in your darkest moments? Or are you filled with anger and bitterness about where you are and why God's let you get there in the first place? Maybe it's time to say, Lord, I'm here. This is yours. Help. Use it for your glory. Second thing I want to ask is, is there anyone here this morning that you or I need to forgive? Think about it. If Joseph hadn't forgiven his brothers, they wouldn't have come from Canaan to Egypt. They may well have all died out in that famine. The salvation story God was telling wouldn't have taken place and the world would be very different. Is there somebody that God is calling you to forgive who is asking to be forgiven by you, but because you're so angry with them, you refuse? Is there someone that you need to forgive this morning? And is your lack of forgiveness stopping God move in your life or in your family or in your workplace? And is there somebody that you need to ask forgiveness from? And is your pride stopping God move in your life this morning? And the final question, those of you that have been promoted to high places, not just work, but other areas of influence, do you love it? Do you love it so much that you would do anything to keep it? Is your promotion more important to you than your service to the King of Kings? And have you ever asked this question? I wonder why God has put me here. Because I can guarantee you, 100%, it is not just so we can look at you and say, well done, although well done. But there is a greater purpose to it, I can guarantee you. Have you ever asked that question?